Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, you're joined by your boy Heavy Days here from the Upside Down Library. And we couldn't make episodes happen without the amazing support of our sponsors. A huge shout out to Seeds here now. Number one seed bank in the industry. Guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. With all the hottest breeders, the latest drops and some of the best prices in the industry. Go check out Seeds here now, guys. You will not be disappointed. Likewise, you need your room to be dialed in if you want to get some killer crops. Check out our buddies at Pulse Sensors who will help you keep all of your parameters in check, even the ones you may not be aware are creeping out, including VPD, temperature, humidity, par, so much more. They've got everything you need to keep your room dialed in. If you're ready to get serious, get a Pulse Sensor, guys. And finally, to make sure your crop is perfect, you need to check out our buddies at Copet Biological Systems. These guys have everything in terms of the latest predator and predation technology from the Afipar M, which will keep aphids out of your garden, your plants happy and healthy, to the Spidex Vital, which literally changes colors in front of your eyes. Proof of predation technology. Get on top of it, guys. Cope at Biological Systems. We love you. Thank you so much for helping keep our gardens clean and for supporting the show. As always, a big shout out to the Patreon gang. You guys are the lifeblood of the show, helping ensure future episodes happen. If you'd like to get early access to upcoming episodes, unreleased exclusive interviews, genetic giveaways every month from some of the latest and greatest breeders, as well as Discord chats, so much more, check out the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. We appreciate you guys. So my friends, on this episode, we're joined by Jake and Marco from No-Till Kings, here to chat all things no-till cultivation, how the company's grown, and a little bit about some of their cultivars. This is a quick one today. I'm very grateful for the boys dropping by. Unfortunately, they had a bit of an emergency mid-episode. We had to cut it short, but I'm sure they'll be back for another one. So without further ado... Let's get into it. Alrighty, gang. Here we are again for another one. And today on this episode, we have the legends behind the No-Till Kings, the organic fanatics and the humus beings themselves, Jake and Marco from No-Till Kings. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us on. Oh man, it's uh it's great to have you on as a as a diehard organic fanatic myself. It's uh gonna be a, a very knowledgeable episode, I think. So to start things off, what are you guys smoking on today? Yeah, the new White Widow that we're dropping, that one's fire. I've been rolling up a lot of Gelato 41. I like the Gelato 41. That's uh, super gas. And uh, we had a batch like a month and a half, two months ago of some SFV times animal mints. I've been smoking on that. Jake likes the gas. I, I like more like the fruits and the citrus, our mimosa, our Jack, our White Widow. Those are all just, those are my favorite. I love that. The two different ends of the spectrum. I'm going to have to say I'm, I'm with you, Marco. I'm, I'm more of a fruity sort of guy myself, and I, I cop a lot of flack from the gas heads for that. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Jake, Jake's all about the gas, the cookies and stuff. I, I love gas too, but yeah, I mean, just the, the terps on, on some of those fruitier strains are just, I love it. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's let's delve into that a little more. But first, quickly, I just want to ask you, Jake. Given you like the SFV animal mints, what's your favorite OG cut? Oh, that's tough. And like, it's tough. I mean, I would say like what Josh D is growing, like the OG Kush story, like the Josh D cut. Uh, that's one of the top OGs out there for sure. Um, I mean, quite a few years ago, like what Kushko was growing, the Kushko cut. A lot of the OG cuts floating around LA are similar um are like similar og cuts but yeah definitely uh i would say like like the josh d cut probably one of the best i haven't i haven't had some in a while but that's definitely one of the best ogs uh out there for sure nice nice and do you guys run any pure og out of curiosity we don't have uh we don't have like a pure og we have the sfv animal mint cross which is definitely a sfv dominant um, but yeah, we're looking, we're looking for like that original cut and, uh, maybe it'll make its way over to us one day. Lovely, lovely. And in amongst those initial strains we mentioned, um, you guys mentioned the white widow. We got a lot of fans messaging us, uh, uh, uh requesting that we ask you about it because as you guys would be aware, you know, it's a blast from the past. People are super interested in it. Tell me a bit of the backstory, you know, where the seeds come from, where the inspiration to Fino hunt this classic come from? Yeah, it's, um, I, we don't actually even really remember what, uh, where we got the seeds. It's been so long. Um, but we've, I, we've been trying to find a white widow since we started growing that and Northern lights. And, um, you know, you just, you pop seeds, you can pop hundreds of seeds and, and none of them are winners. We've done a lot of Northern Lights in the past and we haven't been able to put any out um, just because they haven't, you know, been, you know, the bud structure hasn't been good or they haven't smoked as good or the, the, the smell just isn't quite there. So we're really stoked to have a White Widow come to market that, you know, kind of hits everything, the bud structure, the terps, the look. Um, it's, it's just very pungent. We're super excited about it. A lot of, um, I think people want to, put their stamp on new strains and cross things. And, and eventually we want to do that too, but there's just some sort of nostalgia that, you know, these old school strains have, I think for a lot of people, um, you know, growing up smoking these strains, uh, they were so potent back then. Um, and, and there's definitely a need and want for these old school strains to kind of surface to the recreational market again. Um, so that's just kind of what we're focusing on. And, yeah, we're super excited to have the White Widow, White Widow come back. So we we you know, hunted a, a bunch of seeds, and and the number eleven was the was the seed that we chose that made the cut. And, and so something too with uh, with these old strains that are that are somewhat making a comeback, and we're bringing some back as well. With that, a lot of people may remember a White Widow they've smoked. 10, 15 years ago. And ours may not be the same as that. It's definitely not the same because we hunted it from seed. Um, whereas a lot of these old strain names were clone only strains of a specific cut. And so white widow originally was bred between two land race strains. So it's a Brazilian sativa crossed with an Indian indica. And our pheno that we found is definitely more on the sativa hybrid leaning side. It's super fruity. It's got like a, like a candy chem nose on, on it. And, uh, 
it's delicious. It like the flavors outrageous. Yeah. So well, we're really excited for it to drop. Yeah. That's a good disclaimer there, Jake. I think, I think, um, yeah, with all these old school strains, a lot of people will have, uh, you know, a certain phenotype in mind, you know, like a certain clone that they had one time. And it's just like, there's so many other phenos from the same lineage of seeds. Um, so that, that was really good, Jake, that you, yeah, hugely. There's this huge sort of reminiscent rose shade glasses thing when people look back. And I also find sometimes people maybe even try the exact clone they are nostalgic over and they're like, oh, this actually isn't as good as I sort of remembered it. But that's a different story. I'd love to ask, um, out of the other phenotypes, the ones that didn't quite make the cut, um, were they just sort of more bland or did you find things that were maybe unique, but as you referenced, like it didn't have the bag appeal or the structure or was it like, yeah, how did it go? Well, a lot of the times just, you know, the bug gets really larfy or um, it's just uh, not as dense um, as we'd like it. Uh, and then it, it just also the nose just isn't quite there that the, the what we want it to be. Um, we pride ourselves in having some of the terpiest flower around. And if, if you're not opening the jar and it's not slapping you in the face, then, then we don't want it in our jars. What a great answer. This sort of segues nicely into the next point because I noticed on your Instagram, you guys do pheno hunt um, various stuff and I love that. And I saw the post about the Pineapple Express where you sort of said, oh, you know, we're not sure if it's going to sort of make it. Let's see how it smokes. It got me wondering... How often is it that you pheno hunt something and at the end of it, you may not have anything really to show? Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time, yeah. Like pretty much out of 100 seeds, you may find one or two. Uh, and if you find five or more than five, that's like really good. Um, and so if we if we pop a batch of seeds and there's like 10 or 15 from one strain, like it's, I mean, it's a roll of the dice. You really never know until you grow it. And sometimes we have to grow it a second or third time. And sometimes that second or third run actually gives it a better chance. Um, so oftentimes it's not even after the first round of testing that we even know. We, if something is close or on the, on the fence, we will run it a second time. Um, and yeah, like most of the time it doesn't work out. Yeah. That's uh, that's cool to hear that you guys have like such uh, high standards for things to meet. And before we sort of move on, I was just quickly curious, are there any other sort of strains from yesteryear that you guys are thinking about maybe delving into in the near future? Mm. Yeah, well, we are hunting some stuff right now. We have some green crack on the hunt, um, as well as a couple train wreck phenos. Um, some ghost some, train haze yeah, ghost, ghost train haze and there's a one or two afghani um so we'll see what's up with those oh wow and northern lights northern lights we're always wanting to get some northern lights um but yeah i think i think if we could find a solid green crack too that's another just super pungent strain that is a blast from the past as well i remember the first time i was smoking green crack and it was just it was something like I never tried before. That's beautiful. It sounds to me like you guys run a reasonably balanced selection of sort of really new hype stuff, like maybe say like, you know, the gelato or the Cushmints, and then also some of this older stuff. Is that how you view it? And and was that intentional? Yeah. Um, Definitely. Um, yeah. 
especially on the on the rec market you have to have flavors of all kinds um you know it's so challenging nowadays uh in the recreational market so many brands so many marketing tools so you definitely have to have an array of flavors um at any given point so we like to try to keep it um you know 50% gas 50% fruity um, you know, any flavors, uh, you know, sativa dominant leaning, indica dominant leaning, we definitely try to keep a nice, well-balanced so uh, customers can go back and, and get something different or they can have something, you know, for the daytime, something for the nighttime. Um, yeah, it's really important to have well-balanced flavors. Yeah. And when when I talk to guests, often we move into this idea of like sort of like a hierarchy of traits. And I guess I'd be interested in knowing for you guys, what's your hierarchy? If like, obviously, you know, in an ideal world, everything looks great, smells great, hits great, you know. But let's just say we had a plant that maybe didn't look quite where you wanted it to, but the effect was just unparalleled, just second to none. Would you entertain that or do you feel like it does sort of need to be well-rounded in a sense? It's... um. It's a balanced combination of a lot of different factors. And so what we really are looking for is one, how does like, how is it growing? Cause that's, that's the first thing is, is it, is it, can it make it through the growth process? Can it clone? Can we flower it? Is, are the buds, is it not herming out? So that's the first thing that we'll be looking at. And then I mean, really the first thing is like the terps and smelling it, but then it, then it goes to the growth process. And so as we're looking at how the plant is growing, we then, if we have 10 seeds of, of one strain, let's say with the white widow, for example, when we're hunting through that, we're looking at the growth of each plant in addition to the terp profile and then, and the, the nug structure as well, while it's growing, because we can tell a lot of a plant while it's still in the flowering room. Um, and that's how we, like, we originally selected our winning, our winning white widow pheno in the flower room because the terps were just out of the, like bursting out of the room and, uh, none of the other phenos really, really hit that. So the biggest thing is like looking at the terps, but then it's also a large combination of the growth of the plant and does it grow? Does it yield? Is it the right structure for how we farm? Um, and then once we chop it, we have to dry it. We have to smoke it. We have to actually see how it smokes. And like with the white widow, for example, we knew like that was destined to winter from the flower room, but sometimes something will smell great in the flower room and then you dry it and it's just yeah. really not. Yeah. Wow. You read my mind. I was, let's, let's delve into that. Cause I was about to ask you and you just started answering it. So I was going to say, it's obviously genetic dependent, right? It depends on the strain. But in my experience, I find exactly what you said, right? Often you see a plant and it looks like the winner and most of the time it does translate. And I've always felt that was interesting, right? Because as you said, looks doesn't necessarily determine the effect. But I find a lot of the genetics I run, it sort of does correlate, right? The one that looks like the winner often smokes the best as well. Do you find that to be the case? Like, do you think it's an exception to the rule less of the time? Or do you think it's it's so variable you can't really make these broad statements? Well, I think it's safe to say, I mean, obviously there's some phenomenons like the old school cherry pie that everyone talks about that would like herm out, you know? Um, but other than that, if it if it's looking good and smelling good in the flower room, it's most likely if you do a proper dry and cure, 
gonna also be good. But that's another thing too. If you're not properly drying and, and, and curing the flower, I've seen harvests get absolutely ruined um, because that process isn't handled with care. Yeah, um, it, exactly. And, uh, and like Marco was saying, most of the time, if it seems good in the flower room, it's going to smoke well. But there is, you know, time to time again, where you do where you have a strain that's just fire, but it it occasionally harms. And that's kind of like you have to make the choice. Is it good? Is it that good that you want to keep running it? Um, or is that like, a you know, is that a deal breaker? And so when, when we're hunting stuff, it it's really a, a combination of everything. We we have to look at like I even smell the stem when it's vegging, like you rub the stem and see how it smells in, in the vegetative growth. And sometimes feeling the stems in the vegetative growth can help you like can really show you how resinous the plant's going to be. Um, if it's just like, some, like stems can straight up just be sticky. Um, and sometimes that's Jake like, actually, sorry, Jake. Oh no, 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 no go ahead. I was going to, Jake actually picked our winning mimosa Fino from a vegging mimosa clone that we had in the bedroom it was crazy wow was it just like super stinky yeah it was like like me i was looking at the leaf structure the the actual internodal spacing as it veges because that's something that's very important too how lanky is the plant is it just super stacked where it's not going to grow tall at all so like that's the factor and then also yeah like the like how the stem smells once you've been doing it for a while, you really can kind of start like telling which plants are going to, are going to do well. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, on the topic of, you, you mentioned mimosa and a little earlier ghost train haze got mentioned. I feel like you guys are one of the smaller group of people who are putting out some very sort of sativa leaning offerings in some strain and, and not just offering sort of these like middle of the road hybrids. I'm curious to know, do you find the public reception for those sativas is, is good or do you feel like people are a bit hesitant compared to like gassy indicas? How does it all play out? I think originally, you know, Southern California was all about the gas. I grew up smoking OG and especially LA with, you know, the San Fernando Valley OG and, and Josh D and all, all like it, 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 California has just been heavy with OG and, and, I've always leaned like once I started stop once I started smoking sativas after being heavily smoking the OGs, I just really started loving sativas a lot more. Um, just you know the fruitier strains, um, and I've absolutely seen a shift in the market and people being really uh, rec uh, receptive to our sativa fruity strains. Um, they, I think because a lot of growers don't really grow them, uh, I, it's, it's been really good for us. We've had a lot of positive feedback. But yeah, I would say the, uh, because the market has been growing a lot of just like cake strains and we've stayed away from all the cake strains. And uh, there's just a lot of that kind of bland hybrids out there. So when we bring something that's just super fruity and pungent, and it also hits the the market definitely re receives it well yeah brilliant that's that's sort of the answer i was hoping to hear <laughs> um and as sort of an extension of that idea 
do you guys in general prefer to run your own phenotype of a certain strain because it's like it's a bit different to what other people have to offer or do you feel like you know when you've got an established clone like a lot of the marketing's done for you like where do you sit on that one we're so we're like a mix of both we love running our own phenos because nobody else has them and they're like our mark that's what we're cultivating but at the same time, for example, the Gelato 41 is probably one of the best gelato cuts out there. Um, and we are cultivating it to a really high degree. So there are strains like that, that we like that, you know, you couldn't grow without having the clone because it's a clone only strain. But in general, we are trying to cultivate our own phenos and pheno hunt everything in house um, and eventually one day breed. But that's a long time down the road. Um, but the more that we can cultivate in-house and come out with our own phenos that nobody else has, it really helps kind of create like a, a market for us that of, of strains that other people are not farming. So much of the market, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of people don't realize a lot of these brands, they don't even cultivate their own flower. They're just buying bulk flower from these other farmers and slapping their label on it. Right. And so it's, it's, that's why the market is just flooded with so much of the same boring cake strains and all that stuff is because it's coming from the same batches even. Um, and just all these brands are calling it their own when it was grown by the same grower. And so, yeah, being able to differentiate ourselves, not only just growing in living soil, but then also having our own phenos is is absolutely what we're going for yeah that's that's brilliant and um and jake touched on maybe down the road breeding i was gonna i was gonna ask you that question and sort of my thoughts have been for the longest time that i view the way the jungle boys did their sort of seed operation as the way to do it right like you spend years finding these unique phenotypes and then you got this whole, whole pool of mothers to breed with would you say that sort of a plan for you guys yeah um Definitely. Uh, and major respect to the jungle boys. They've, you know, created a phenomenal, uh, just infrastructure of cultivation and distribution and retail. Um, and yeah, they, their breeding program and tissue culture program is definitely something to model after. And in my opinion, every hydroponic farm across the world is modeling their hydroponic farm system after jungle boys. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's that's the way to do it. You have to have your you have to have your genetic library, and then if you can, which Jungle Boys did, if you can hunt males only in a room, they have flowered out entire rooms of males to test the pollen, and then select the pollen to breed with. And so, I mean, that's like pretty legend status on breeding. And uh, if we ever get to a point like that, that would be amazing. Yeah. Wow. I have to admit, I hadn't heard of pollen testing when you say testing like did, what what were they actually testing like like visually or like doing like lab testing no like they'll lab test for the terpene profile in the pollen wow that's cool yeah love that so yeah looping back to sort of one of the questions we were talking about earlier when you're talking about pheno hunting and stuff like that and you're saying you know we're sort of always looking for an nl and stuff like that like how much emphasis do you place on the provenance of seeds? Like if some guy messaged you and says, Hey, I got some old NL, like my gut instinct would be, 
that that might not be NL at all. You know, like where do you, do you feel like you got to really make sure you source the stock, or are you open to hunting most things if they're given to you? Well, we're definitely we we can't be because of the laws and the regulations. So the seeds that we have are the seeds that we have to work with. So, you know, the, the, the people that are familiar with the metric system in California, it's just been very challenging to really grow things that, I mean, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty difficult, but yeah, we don't, we're not, uh, we're not looking to basically take random seeds. We have a good seed stock that we've been hunting for a while or that we've been like saving for a long time. And what Marco was talking about, it's the it's this M metric M E T R C. It's the software system that the state requires licensed uh, all licensed cannabis businesses to use, and it's the track and trace uh, software. And so, basically, stuff has to be in integrated in the system already for you to use it. Um, and that's why we eventually want to get into seed production so that we're able to produce our own genetics. Um, but yeah, and it just like, it, it takes so much time, effort, money, resources to actually pheno hunt a strain. And so we want to know that if we're going to hunt something that it's legit. Um, absolutely. And yeah, so we definitely don't, don't take random seeds from random people. Yeah. That's, uh, totally understandable. So let's delve into some of the more, the more technical aspects of it, but, but quickly, I'd love to ask, what inspired you guys to to go down the organic cultivation side of things even before say you opened the facility what was your entry into the organic world uh, mountain organics actually um you know he's kind of a what we believe a legend in the space was one of you know the earlier guys that was uh, showcasing no-till on in you know with cannabis indoors um and uh, we just saw him on Instagram and we just became absolutely fascinated that you don't have to throw away soil, that, you know, all these worms, and microorganisms are living in these pots um, and that it truly is, you know, a healthier, better, terpier alternative. And the first side-by-side uh, -side grow that I had um, growing just in regular soil versus uh no-till was so much of a difference and just kind of never looked back after that um a clearer high um you know a terpier taste every you just felt better smoking it ever since i grew my first no-till pot it was just a clear way not only that knowing how small of a cultivation we are just being jake and i and then you know we have eight employees we knew going into the legal market that we had to do something different anyways. Um, and so it just made even more sense for us to grow indoor living soil. Yeah. Wow. And um, what, what stimulated you to transition from say, like growing wherever you were before your current facility is to being like, let's do this big operation. Was there any, was it just a slow sort of gradual thing or was there like a defining moment where you're like, you know what, no one's doing this. I reckon we can pull it off. It was, uh, it really was. So in California, cannabis became recreationally legal on the, in the ballot in 2016. In November, it was voted in to be recreational. And so, uh, 
Marco and I grew up working in the Prop 215 era and, uh, you know, working with the shop and um, we had small, you know, a small grow before and we just are the goal was to join the legal market and to transition out of what was the medical market before um, because the whole licensing structure is still a learning process for everybody, but each city is different. And so basically we had to make the decision to stop trying to cultivate on the medical market that wasn't the licensed medical market because now there's the licensed medical licensed recreational but it's it's all together now and so we had to really make the decision to stop doing everything we were doing and look at how we can get a license and get a license in a city that will allow us to operate and so it just spent like it spent a year we i spent a year looking for a building we had to get this building we built it out we took a year to get another year to get our building permit so we're two years in and then a year to build the place so basically three years we had to kind of put everything on hold so we could go legal and not have to look over our shoulder and not have to worry about getting everything chopped down and all the money lost for no reason um so we so we put everything on hold and then we uh you know we dove into the licensing i got the license and i built the facility and uh yeah it's been a it's been a gnarly gnarly process that's for sure hey uh i'm i'm so sorry i i got to jump out um because of this emergency but uh i just wanted to say shout out to australia for uh keep doing your thing hopefully it, it uh you know pushes forward there into into recreational sooner than later and uh mad love to to everyone that's uh growing cannabis and um you know following our journey and and we just we appreciate all of you so so thank you so much for having us on and and uh jake jake will take over for me no worries. Huge thanks. Take care, Marco. I got this. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Marco, for stopping by. We appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully hopefully everything's all good and we can chat more in the future. Thank you. Thank you, likewise. All right, bye. Cool, cool, cool. So, I mean, on that on that topic, Jake, do you find that the, the legal framework is still really challenging to navigate, or do you feel like you're at a point where, where it's sort of a little bit of smooth sailing, but, you know, it's still hard? <laughs> Um, like for us, because we have the license, it's not as bad now, but to get the license was just a nightmare and the regulations are still evolving and changing on the city level and the state level. And so it's just like the taxes are changing, um, and like certain licensing procedures are changing. And so it is still, it's still evolving. We're in a better place than I would say if you were like just trying to get your license now, because it's just the market has become inundated over the last, you know, four years with so many people getting uh, licensed. So it's, uh, it's been, it's been a wild roller coaster. That's for sure. Yeah, certainly. And, and just as like a little follow up. I hear from lots of people who go through the trials and tribulations you just mentioned and sadly many of them aren't able to get the license and or various things happen and a lot of farmers have ended up ultimately leaving California because it's just they feel like they've been pushed out of the market. Do you feel like that sort of um, sentiment has ever affected you? Have you ever considered leaving California or was the goal always to do your thing there? Um. Yeah, I mean, we've just been like extremely persistent. And so I'm from, you know, I'm from San Diego. 
and uh, in California, and uh, we're up in Long Beach now, so we cultivate in Long Beach. But I've never considered leaving California. Um, in my opinion, it would be a. I mean, it's really tough here. Don't get me wrong, but it's going to be tough anywhere. And I don't know any other area, like another state, to go operate in, um, and to have the connections and you know the to build things and have contractors and all that. And so we've kind of established a network here, but. Thankfully, we haven't had to consider leaving, but a lot, I mean, it's just tough. A lot of farmers were left behind. And most of that is like, it's a combination of reasons. There's some financial, a lot of it is that the city that they are, that they live in or they're operating in just won't license them because the city bans it still, or the county bans it still. Cause there's a lot of farms in what we are considered unincorporated land where it's not in us, like it's, if you're in the city of Los Angeles, for example, there's also the county of Los Angeles. And the county has been illegal for up until now. I think there was a ballot. I don't know if it got passed yet, but the county did not have any licensing, only the city. And so the unincorporated land, which most land, like in San Diego County, San Diego has a bunch of different cities and every single city has a different licensing structure. And so in order to get licensed in any particular city, the city that you are operating in has to sign off on what you're going to do. So if you want to, if you want to build a cultivation facility in whatever city it is, that city has to have ordinance and a licensing structure to grant you a city license. If the city that you are in will do that, then the state will grant you a license if you do all the stuff you have to do to get the state license. But it all hinges on the local on the local area that you're operating in. And that's the biggest problem is that so many cities in California just outright banned cannabis because they're uh, just not with it and they don't see the benefit. And that will change, but it's going to take going to take years and takes ballot initiatives and people to vote and ordinances to get written um and so it's a slow slow process but that's why the black market has been fueled for the past you know forever in california because it's a lot easier for these guys to just keep selling on the black market because the city they're in won't even give them a license anyway yeah that's that's an interesting point and i have for a long time wondered what the uh, the landscape of the scene will be in say ten to fifteen years time, and I'd love I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you think we're going to move more towards like a like an alcohol style model where you know there's maybe less brands and there's like your Bud Light sort of equivalent, or what? Where do you think we'll be in ten fifteen years? I think so. Like it's a it depends. Like it depends on if cannabis becomes federally legalized in the United States. And if that does happen and uh, brands like us or anybody that's legal in California or any other state, if we are allowed to sell to other states legally, that will change the market a little bit. However, with that being said, this is a brand new category of a commodity. So like cannabis is one of the largest agricultural crops by volume and dollars sold in the world now, and especially in the United States and in California, it's like, it's, a, it's in the top 10. And so because of that, 
we like the whole cannabis industry has created a, an, an entirely new concept of how thing uh, like a whole new category of things legally sold is now available. And that's why there's and like I'll, I'll get to the point that I'm making, but that's why that there's all these we had to create stores just to sell cannabis. Whereas there are individual liquor stores, there's individual beer stores, but there's all, but they also sell all of those products at gas stations, at supermarkets, anywhere in, in the United States is selling alcohol and uh, liquor. You have to have a liquor license, but with cannabis, we had to create an entire new structure of licensing and retail stores and all these new ordinances to sell this product. So I don't know if the regulations will ever allow like a normal grocery store to sell cannabis or not, because this is a brand new agricultural commodity that required all of these retail stores to be opened purely to sell the product. So that like, that's the challenge. And the other challenge in the United States is that even once it becomes federally legal, it's going to be dependent on each state to create the licensing structure. So let's say a state just outright bans it, then, you know, it's, uh, they might ban sale. Like it's, it, there's a huge gray area in the United States with that. If, if a state is banning it, but it's federally legal, can you go buy it in another state and bring it over? It's one of those tough things. And so once it goes federally legal, it's going to be somewhat similar to what it is now. It's just going to be more available and you'll be able to see brands that you might not have seen in a state because they couldn't sell there. But with that, there's currently large groups that are multi-state operators where they're in California, they're in Michigan, in Florida, now in New Jersey too, and New York. And so there's a lot of like, not a lot, there's like a handful of large, large companies that have partnered with some of the top brands that are from California so that they position themselves to have the cultivation infrastructure in multiple states. Because currently to sell in a particular state, you have to grow it in that state. So to sell weed in Florida, you have to grow it in Florida. To sell weed in California legally, you have to grow it in California in a licensed facility. And that's also one of the craziest things too, because no other agricultural commodity is required to be sold. Like everything from that region that is grown required to be sold in that same region because nothing, nothing could sell that much. And that's part of the problem with the market. There's oversupply because everything has to be sold in the state that it's grown in. And it's just crazy. It's, I mean, it's, it's a crazy concept because like, if you think of like wine that comes from most of the wine produced in Australia is produced for export. They're exporting it to other countries because like no, no country could consume the amount of agricultural commodities that the country produces. And that's what we're seeing with cannabis. And that's, that's hurting the market. Also to touch on that point about like the brands and a big brand, like, the thing with cannabis that is different than alcohol is like, even if there's a brand that becomes like the Bud Light of, of, you know, cannabis, it's such a challenging thing. Like there's going to be like the low quality weed that is basically the same across all the States once it's federally legal. But 
if you want like top quality flower stuff like that we're cultivating you can't reproduce that on a massive scale basic like and that's the challenge that these large groups have been trying to do what like what we can cultivate with a hundred lights you can't replicate that and do 10,000 lights and have it be the same quality and so that's the challenge with cannabis because it's a we're growing like a dense flower that has a ton of moisture content and so it's so hard to standardize that on a massive production scale and actually scale the quality. Whereas with beer, it's a, I mean, it's still hard. Like they can't do the craft batch on a massive scale either. And so it's kind of like that, but cannabis has always started from that craft batch quality type, type of grow. And so that's kind of the difference there of, what will be of like the massive outdoor farms just putting out flour that's super cheap that is the same basically and like your top quality you know indoor grown hundred light facility so there's huge difference yeah you nailed it that was going to be one of the questions so as a quick follow-up do you think the answer then is if you can't scale up if if the quality starts to drop off at a certain point is the answer to set up a second facility somewhere else that equally does a second small craft batch yeah. Um, I mean, it's tough, right? So like the reason that, you know, par- part of the reason we're able to have the quality that we have right now is because, you know, I'm here operating the facility all the time. And so everything that's coming through our harvest room, I, my eyes are on. And it's like, until we can really put the training in place and, you know, the standard operating procedures to teach all this stuff and replicate it. It's just tough because the one thing with cannabis is a lot of it is nuanced, uh, like how we dry stuff when it's 14 days dry versus 16 days dry. And like the, the moisture content in the stems and the leaves and actually seeing the bud cure and all of those things, it's, it, it all comes with experience. And so it's not it, what these large groups are finding is that even if they're setting up 10 facilities that are all 200 lights, not every facility is going to produce the same quality because it's just really hard. And so even for us, like personally, if we were to do another facility, we would want to do a large greenhouse because a lot of it would go for extracts. We would also do some for flour but we know that we just can't produce the quality of flour that we produce now on a massive scale. And that's just the challenge. You, like either you want to stay quality and, and do it small. Like there's maybe one or two companies right now that are, that have been able to scale and keep their quality. And it's just tough. It's just really tough. It's really cash intensive. It takes a ton of money um to actually build another facility and then actually run it and all that it's uh it's definitely tough yeah so for us i don't i don't know that we would even want to do another another facility yet until we're until their demand is so high that like we can't even keep a jar on the shelf then it makes sense but the demand's got to be there sure and as a final quick question on this sort of discussion of scale if you did scale up with your organic cultivation practice what is it in your mind that's the primary thing that affects the quality? Is it the pest pressure or is it just each plant is getting less attention because there's more plants? Yeah, it's, um, it's a con- like it, it could be a combination of those. So as groups scale, 
the it's hard to care as much because you've got so much more volume that you're putting out and and so much more plant material to work with so if there's a bad run it's like oh well there's another one coming down next week um and so it's it's just tough but what happens is that just keeps continuing down the line oh this is bad oh that runs bad oh well now everything is just mediocre and uh and and it's just tough i think uh i think scaling is in cannabis is like in the cultivation side of cannabis is one of the toughest things to do yeah no doubt well Let's jump into some of the brass tacks of some organic growing. So I wanted to know, what's the basic composition of your soil? Is it the standard one 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 ratio of compost, aeration, peat moss? Is it anything different? So, uh, so we run the like our base soil is the build a soil three blend, um, and then after we have that, that's a well blended mixed like living soil base. Um, once we get that, so if we like for, for one room, it'll take about 20 yards of soil, um, 20 cubic yards and 20 to 24 or so. And then with that, we will then we're running 24 foot long growing beds. So they're four feet wide by 24 feet long, basically one meter, a, a, a little more than a meter wide. Um, but yeah, four feet wide by 24 feet long. And we put 10,000 worms per bed to start. And then we will also soil, we will test the soil when we get it to see if we need to amend it with something else to kind of help it get up to the elemental levels that we want to the mineral content. Um, and then we will let the worms kind of work in there. We put mulch over it so the worms have something to eat. Um and then, and then it's pretty much ready to rock. And as we continue growing in it, we keep testing the soil so we can add the top dressings of the minerals that we need, um, as well as we water in biodynamic compost. So the compost that we use is extremely rich in beneficial, uh, beneficial fungal networks and nematodes and beneficial bacteria. And so we, uh, water in what what we call a compost extract because we do not brew compost teas anymore we got away from that a few years ago um and the reason is because when you are brewing a tea for an extended period of time 12 or 24 hours it has quite a high chance of becoming anaerobic where it is without oxygen and when you put that into your soil you end up killing all of the beneficial bacteria and you end up in like uh, you end up putting in um, anaerobic bacteria, which wants to like destroy the soil. Yeah, definitely some wise words there. I myself have been guilty of using a uh, a pump that was not sufficient, and I come back to my tea and I've got cider. So um, I can yep. I can relate to that one for sure. I wanted to ask: um, Do you use any microbial supplements? So like um, mycorrhiza, trichoderma, anything like that you specifically want to get in there? When we transplant, so whenever we transplant clones into like a small pot, we we use a micro we use a powdered mycorrhizae, and then we it's mixed with water. And so we'll, we'll coat the roots with some mycorrhizae. And then also anytime we transplant into our flowering beds, uh, we will put mycorrhizae on the, like we'll, we'll just spray with a, the water solution, some mycorrhizae on the root ball um, to really help that network grow. 
That's amazing. And I love that you uh, mentioned you inoculate the soil with worms to begin with. I think a lot of organic growers can sort of understand that. My question becomes, I know that um, Mountain Organics uses uh, some wetting agents. And I know that some wetting agents like saponins can be harmful to worms. But I haven't tested it in reality. I've only read the literature. Do you use any sort of wetting agents or saponins? And, and do you feel like it has any effect on the worms? Or you think it's probably a bit overblown? I mean, not like we're not using stuff like directly in the soil. We use the Mountain Organics botanical tinctures that we foliar spray. Um, but for the most part, the worms, when they're down in the soil protected by the mulch layer, if you're not putting, you know, actually harmful stuff in there, uh, most everything stays pretty solid. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would say for, for the most part, the worms are pretty chill as long as you're not, you know, as long as the environment that they're in doesn't become hostile. Um, they're, they're pretty tough. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And do you do anything to your water? Do you have to do anything to your water or you find it's pretty good where you're at and you can just use it straight? So, uh, we do reverse osmosis. And that the main reason is one, it gives us uh, chlorine free water so that we're not harming the worms, but also the problem with city water in, in California, Long Beach, LA, is there's so much stuff in the water. Um, mainly we've got like a ton of nitrates and chlorides and then chloramines as well. But the problem with chloride is that uh, the chloride will uh, lock out nutrients And so by doing reverse osmosis, we keep it, the water stays at a neutral pH right around seven. Um, And that allows us to really like when when we water in our compost, it's just plain RO water mixed with compost. And we just water that into the soil. And then the nutrients that we use, which are from organics alive, and they create basically a dehydrated uh, powder that is produced from a bacteria. And so there's a specific bacteria and an enzyme. And when they're together, the byproduct uh, is then dehydrated. And the specific byproduct that they make is like, depending on the bacteria and enzyme that they're using, it creates an A and like an NPK ratio. So they've got four different bacterias and enzymes that they use. So, and so they have four different products that all have a, a slightly different NPK ratio. And like one is higher in nitrogen and then one of them is higher in potassium. And then they've got one that's also higher in phosphorus. And so those, uh, the organics alive nutrients that we use along with some of the other stuff from like soil symbiotics, uh, all like all made for living soil, having that neutral pH and by using RO water really helps uh, stabilize everything. And so we do not pH the water. It, it will change slightly down to like a, like a 6.3, six, between a 6.2 and 6.5 uh, based on like the, the nutrients that we're putting in. And so we lab test the nutrient water as well to actually check everything that's in it and all that. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So throughout the cycle, do you guys ever top dress with amendments or is it more done at the end of the cycle? Yeah, so normally when when we transplant a room, and also keep in mind when we when we do transplant a room, it's not immediately flipped to flower. We actually veg in the flower room for about two weeks so that the plants can really soak their roots into the into the soil. 
and we will top dress generally right when we transplant. And then we will try to top dress again before week three of flower. And so generally we'll have to do a soil test about two weeks after we top dress so that we can then have a new amendment made uh, for the, you know, the first two weeks, three weeks of flower. Yeah. Okay. So just to clarify, it sounds like whenever you're adding nutrients, you're basically going off tests and you're not really like winging it. Yeah. So, so we do a lot of soil analysis and uh, we work with this group called Crescive Soil and they help us dial in our, our uh, actual amendments that we use. And it's all based on uh, like the soil core samples. So we take core samples from each bed uh, and like we blend it together for one room. And so we send that out to a lab, uh, to Logan labs here in, uh, they're in Ohio, um, in the United States. And we, uh, and they analyze all the elemental content. They check the pH of the soil and they look at all the available new, like all the available minerals. Um, and then from that test, then we, uh, then that, then it changes what we amend with or the quantities of what we amend with. Yeah, okay, interesting. And out of a personal curiosity, to what degree do you allow beneficial microbes and biology to exist? Because I know sometimes I look at my pots and I'm like, man, there's a lot of rove beetles and hypoapsis just running around having a ball. Do you have to keep your eye on that or you're, you can just be comfortable letting it do its thing? Most of it stays in check. So it's, it's a combination of the soil biology as well as the elemental and mineral content. So the compost extract really helps the soil biology. Um, we also, one of the people from Crescive is a microbiologist. And so we haven't done it in a while, but we need to do start doing it more is we send soil samples to them and then she will look at it under a microscope and actually chart the bacteria, like the, all the colonies of fungal networks that are in the soil. And from that, they can tell us, are these beneficial bacteria? Is this, is this anaerobic bacteria? Um, so we, we need to start doing it more, but that's how we check the health of that type of stuff is by doing, uh, by looking at the biological activity of the soil. Sure, sure. And as a general question, do you, you know, like crop steering is like the trendiest word in the industry at the moment, in my opinion. And I'm wondering, do any of those specific protocols of how those soilless guys do crop steering, does any of that translate to you? Like, are you doing anything that would fall into that realm? Or do you think now we're still sort of doing the, the more organic thing? Yeah. And like, are you talking about guys that are all farming in Rockwall? Yeah, yeah. I guess what I, I'm referring to is like, you know, the way they do the temperatures and they're pumping certain nutrients at certain times. Like, is any of that applicable, like outside of the obvious yeah. difference in... Not... So, um, when they're watering multiple times per day, they're generally farming hydroponically in rock wool. And also for people that aren't aware, when we say farming hydroponically, we mean that someone is farming in a soilless media. So they're farming without soil. So cocoa is a hydroponic media. And so, and so is Rockwell, one of the most famous ones. And uh, because it's so light and easy to work with. Um, but yeah, we, we do not water like that. We also hand water, but Rockwell cubes have to be watered four to five times a day because they dry out quickly as the plants get so big in them. So um, that's not something that we have to do with soil. Um, 
And then there's also a blend of people farming in soil pots using hydroponic nutrients. And what happens there is that they end up throwing away all their soil each round, uh, whereas we're able to reuse it. And like in one of our rooms, we're on our 13th cycle. Um, so we have harvested it 12 times before. That's amazing. That's that's the dream, right? I, um, I did want to ask you because I saw that post. Do you think that theoretically soil can be used infinitely or do you think that like, you know, at a certain point it might be beneficial to get a new batch? No, I think that as long as we're amending it properly, it will get better with time and the worms will keep working it. But it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a strange thing because when you farm indoors, there is, there's not a long off cycle. So a normal indoor farm can realistically get four to five harvests a year if they time it all 60 days apart they can get five harvests a year because they're just replacing the growing media every time whereas in living soil we really can only max out at four harvests a year because we have to let the soil rest in between harvests and so it's it's one of the things that we just have to do in order to farm in living soil and to produce a higher quality product um and with that, if we keep amending it and working it, it will get better. But the, the difference between farming indoors in living soil and like rotating your crops on like four acres of land where let's say you grow on this acre and then you rotate and you grow something else. It's just different because we're growing the same, you know, we're, we're growing different strains, but we're farming cannabis in this same body of soil over and over again. And so it will get better, but we have to actively work every month to amend it and make sure otherwise it does get depleted and you'll see that in the runs. Yeah, nice, nice. And in terms of when you're amending at the end of a cycle, what sort of nutrients are coming up? Like, is it like it's, it's mostly a lot of nitrogen and calcium we're trying to replace? Like what sort of things are you commonly... Yeah, I mean, it's everything. So like we're replacing nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, uh like amino acids from all the trace minerals as well. Um, so you've got like, you know, iron, copper, other trace minerals. Um, and so it's a combination of everything that, that has to get replenished. And that's, we can tell that by testing the soil. And the question I wanted to ask you most prominently in this whole interview was, how do you deal with IPM? I have to imagine this is one of the big issues on scale for you guys is your pest pressure. What sort of your protocols for that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a combination of things. Uh, first and foremost is keeping the facility clean. Um, when you farm in living soil, there are bugs and that's just part of the soil life and the soil food web is there's a balance of beneficial bugs in there and beneficial insects that are going to be in the soil. And so when we've had fungus gnats in the past, we've uh, put in nematodes into the soil um, and we water in uh, nematodes and those really help kind of clear stuff that we don't want. We also use sticky fly traps everywhere um, and we spray the mountain organics botanical tinctures in veg, which is all like all organic ingredients in there. And so the, like the peppermint and stuff that's in the botanical tincture, that stuff really helps with the, you know, the leaves and things like that. Um, and like thrips and stuff that could like be living on the leaves. But in terms of in the soil, 
Like if you look at our soil, you'll see all sorts of stuff crawling around in there and there's beneficial, uh, we've got like beneficial mites in the soil that have kind of just appeared over time. And, uh, all that stuff is fine and it just stays, it stays in the soil and it's helping work the soil food web. So like the biggest thing is, yeah, we use mountain organics, botanical tinctures. Um, that would be like our main spray. If you want to put that on the IPM list, it would be like the mountain organics, botanical tinctures, um, as well as just really trying to keep a clean environment. Um, the nematodes are a huge IPM, uh, protocol as well. Um, because those get watered in and, and they really help the soil out. Um, and yeah, just really trying to keep everything healthy and just inspecting, inspecting the plants regularly. And if you were to get some sort, let's just, let's just hypothetically, let's say you've got a mite infestation. Is that something which with your facility, you'd be able to handle reasonably easy or is it a bit of an uphill one? I feel like, I feel like with like spider mites, you have to really be negligent to like, for it to become a massive problem. Because like, if you aren't inspecting the plants regularly and you don't see that the mites are starting to appear, um, it's like, it's just not good in general. Like you might have PM on your buds at that point. And, uh, and so I feel like anything that is bad, like if you notice it, you just got to get it out right away. Um, but if you're doing a spray regularly and like ours is all organic hundred percent, but other, other farms that are spraying a pesticide every, every week, uh, I mean, that normally does it for them, but like we're spraying only organic stuff and that seems to do it just as fine as well without harming the beneficial insects that are in the soil. Yeah. A brilliant answer. A brilliant answer. So one of the uh, Patreon submitted questions we got from one of our listeners was they're big fans and they wanted to know you know, do you still have the terpene content displayed on the packaging? And do you think that that sort of education is translating to the consumer? Yes. Yeah. So we, we do put our terpene graph uh, on the back of our box. Uh, we've been using that now for a bit and people definitely like it. I think, uh, I think it's still new, like people looking at the terps that are on it, but it really helps, you know, it helps kind of catch the eye to our box. Um, and it helps us display the strain name as well. Um, but it, it definitely, it's taken time. A lot of people still care about THC, but thankfully for our brand, not as many people care about the THC numbers. It's really about the quality of the flower. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say like the knowledge of terpenes and the different terpenes and how they, and how people like the different flavors, it's still kind of evolving. And, uh, People are being educated at the dispensaries. You know, what are terpenes? Like, what are all these things listed on here? And so it, it, it just takes time. It's still, it's getting there for sure. A lot of people, a lot of people are being educated about it. Um, and I think us having it on the box, it really helps show the consumer, you know, what, what are the eight like prominent terpenes that are in this specific batch? Um, and for like people that buy our flower regularly, they'll see batch to batch the, the terpenes change a little bit. And, uh, you know, we want it to be as consistent as possible, but when you're farming something like this, there's going to be a little bit of changes. And so I think as people see that over time, like, you know, they'll really start to get a good idea of, Hey, I like this strain because it has this terpene in it. Um, you know, stuff like that, but it's just, it, it's kind of still a little early and not, not a lot of people, are you know 
yeah, it's it's still early and it's just being educated still. Sure, sure, sure. So another question we got from one of our uh, Patreon supporters was, are you under any additional or more stringent testing in regards to like, you know how we talk about like CFU units on the plant and because we use beneficial microbes that might play into it. Does that affect you any differently to anyone else or it's all pretty straightforward, easy sailing? No. um, Yeah, no. Everything gets tested the same in California. And so there's like we're tested for a whole list of pesticides uh, and everything, heavy metals, the, the, like the, the microbial test tests for five different types of mold. Um, and so like, we've definitely gotten that question before because people will think we'll hear, Hey, you're watering in all this biology. Is it not just on the buds, but it's definitely not at all. Like what we put into the soil stays in the soil. And it really, the biggest thing in farming when you're farming cannabis indoors is the grow environment and the temperature and humidity that you keep in the room as well as the airflow that's what causes microbial contamination is when you don't have the right vpd where your your vapor pressure deficit is off and your temperatures and humidities are not correlated and you can get mold that's what causes all the issues yeah sure uh, another listener was keen to know, what's the biggest challenge you've faced in running the facility in today's market? And do you feel like people are becoming more interested in organic cannabis? Yeah, I would say people definitely are becoming more interested um, in, you know, living soil, organically farmed things. And I think with cannabis, it just takes more time Um But as people, you know, are demanding more living soil products, we hope to be positioned where we are one of the original living soil brands. Um, But it's just, it's just tough. I would say, I mean, I don't know what the toughest thing would be that we've faced in today's market. Uh, Like everything is super tough, just cultivating legally. Like, I mean, just building the facility, the licensing, like it's all super tough. And, uh, I think it's just it, like the toughest thing is just like having faith and staying persistent to actually execute on our plan because it takes months to cultivate this product and then we have to dry it and trim it and package it and then sell it and sell it in a reasonably quick manner so that it's fresh and that it doesn't sit and you know become old. And so it's just like I kind of describe our facility. It's like having 10 like, you know, car engines running 24 seven that you always have to be keeping up with. And it's just like, things can go wrong, but it, it's just like, it's just, there's a, so many moving parts with all the dehumidifiers and the ACs and the water and everything. There's so many moving parts. It's, uh, it, it's definitely tough to run a legal cannabis business just overall. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'll get heckled if I don't. I want to ask you, what's your favorite organic amendment and your least favorite? And I'll I'll give you mine quickly so you don't feel like you're getting thrown under the bus. My favorite input is oyster shell flour. I love it. And uh, my least favorite would be dolomite because it screws your soil up long term. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know what my favorite amendment would be. I feel like because we amend with a lot of different things, I, I'm like, uh, I like, I like the blend of, of everything that we use and it kind of, it, it's kind of nice. 
Um, well, oyster shell is very nice. It's a nice, you know, like soft powder. Um, definitely nice. He was great. You know, the, the, the soil likes it. Um, I like gypsum also. Gypsum's good to use. Um, I don't know what I, I mean, I don't really like neem. I'm not, we're not, a, we're not big on neem and uh, like neem cake and stuff like that. We don't use it. Neem can sometimes harm the biology, but like, so, like some products have neem and a little bit in it and that's totally fine, but we don't, we try not to put a ton of neem into the soil or anything. Like we don't really put any, um, and like, like neem seed meal. I didn't really, I haven't liked using neem seed meal before, uh, yeah, it's not my favorite. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. I think a lot of people, including myself, use a lot of neem. So that that's cool to hear that there's another side to the coin. And I've certainly heard and read about some of those negative things about neem. So everyone go read into it a bit more for sure. So final question before we do the quick five at the end. Do you care about the whole so-called clean smoke white ash debate? Or like, do you think that because you're coming from this organic background, it's like it's sort of a bit irrelevant? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. Um, so there's two sides to it. So when you farm high, oh, okay, let me preface it, preface it with living soil and how we approach it. So when you are farming in living soil, it's not as big of a deal. And it's not a clear indicator that this is good or this is not. But with that said, uh, when you do farm in living soil and the plant ripens, at the right rate and is cut when it's mature and ready to be harvested, the ash should be fairly white. Even if it's mixed a little bit kind of salt and pepper looking, it should have a nice looking ash and it should hold together well. And part of that comes with the plant dying appropriately and being at the end of its life. And when the soil is healthy, the plant will ripen on its own. Now we all, we will water with plain water for the last, you know, week usually. Um, so when we're in living soil, it's not as big of a deal because there's still nutrients in our soil. 100%. We're not flushing out all the nutrients by any means. There's still a lot of nutrient content in the soil, but the plant is ripening on its own and ready to be harvested. And when that is the case, it should have a good ash. And if it's dried properly, if, if everything else is done properly, it should have a nice looking ash. Now, on the flip side, when you farm hydroponically, the reason that white ash, like the reason in cannabis why white ash is uh, preferred is because hydroponic farming is what kind of jump-started cannabis into the culture that it is. And so when you farm hydroponically, you have to flush out the nutrients because you don't want to smoke the synthetic nutrients that you're feeding. And so in hydroponic farming, a white ash can sometimes indicate that this has been flushed better than, let's say, if it's darker. So that's the difference on the white ash debate when you farm hydroponically versus when you farm in living soil. I love it. I love it. Everyone should... Uh should just growing living soil and then it's not a big issue right? <laughs> right exactly exactly so that brings us on to our tail end and what we call our final five so 
first question I want to ask you, what is the single most memorable experience you've had with cannabis? So it doesn't necessarily need to be like the most potent hit, but just like, you know, maybe you're at the creek and you went for a swim and just like everything was just hitting right. Like what's the most memorable thing for you? Ooh, um, I don't know. Probably like I'm just like tracing through my head, like racing through my brain right now, thinking about that. And I popped to when I harvested my first flower successfully um, because before, and it was like three clones that I had grown outside in San Diego that I got from clone. Cause before that I grew probably 15 or 17 plants and they all died. Like nothing came out of it. There was no flower. There was nothing. And then I finally, after a summer successfully harvested these clones. And uh, that's probably one of the most memorable things of like, actually being able to harvest it. I dried it. It smoked. It was awesome. It, it was, it was a SFV cut and, uh, it smoked really nice. Um, and that kind of was like, wow, like you can grow this plant. And then if you do everything right, you can then smoke it. And it was like, I always knew, like, I love smoking weed. I want to grow this. Cause I don't, I, I want to be able to produce it for myself. And, uh, that was a huge point for me to actually successfully harvest a plant after failing like literally 17 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's cool. There's so many aspects like the realization of self-reliance is there. And I just as a quick, super quick follow-up, do you think the fact you harvested an SFV might have been the stepping stone for why you love gas? Uh, Maybe. I mean, not just that. Like, I also worked at, a, I ran this shop and like, we only sold OG. And so I was just, I've been brought up on OG and like some of the best OGs in LA. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's definitely what I like to smoke. I think it's, uh, I think a lot, like for like heavy, heavy smokers, a lot of heavy smokers like, like those kind of like deeper strains, but I also love smoking fruity stuff too. Uh, it's just, you know, it, it, it's all a different time. Oh yeah, don't don't you worry. I'm gonna when I hang up this call, I'm gonna smoke some biscotti pancakes. It's very gassy. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, so on the other end of the spectrum, quickly, what's a strain where like everyone was hyping it up when it came out, and you were super keen to try it, and then when you finally tried it, you were like, oh, is that it? Ooh, that's a good question. Let me think. Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, I try to just smoke like the like fire ass stuff and so like it's <laughs> it's uh it's tough like i've been smoking what we grow for a while but let, let me think is there a hyped up strain that i've like tried that i didn't um i don't know i don't want to put any brands on blast but there's some of the top brands that have been grow like some of their stuff's been falling off and it's just like that but that's what we were talking about back to the scale is like you just you can't scale with the quality. And so it's like, there's been like some of the top, top brands that, that you can think of, uh, their batches just aren't quite there anymore. And so it's like stuff that I might've wanted to try of the strains that they were growing three years ago. I don't even want to try anymore because it's just like, you know, that the quality is not there. And so I'd say it's, it's more stuff like that. I think, trying to think if there's like, I mean, jungle boys grow a ton of strains. So they'll even admit they've got some batches that aren't the best. Um, but I feel like when I, uh, all the stuff I used to pick up before we were cultivating here, like I was, you know, I'm very particular, like super particular. 
And so, like, I feel like even if I picked a bad one, it's still kind of, it's like, all right, you know? Um, oh, you know what? I, I, there's one strain I remember that I was before, like, dispensary time. It was called Snowcap. And I thought it was going to be, uh, I thought it was going to be great, but it was just, like, a terrible representation of it. Like, it was just, like, it smelled like hay. I mean, it was terrible. Like, and the guy was hyping it up, and it was just, like, man, this, what am I going to do with this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's one i could remember that was like oh this is not i thought this was gonna be great <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember having some snow cap a long time ago that it wasn't particularly memorable so there you go i love that okay so uh next question oh yeah by the way i want to say it because you won't when i was in the states recently i had a lot of good connected cali stuff but high rise from connected california was shit yeah other, but the, but they also had some great stuff. Their gelinade was sick. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's th- that's exactly my point. Like they they've got great genetics, but they just are the the scale is losing the quality. Definitely, definitely. So next quick fire one is I'm going to drop you off on a desert island, and you can take three strains with you. They can be clones, or they could be seeds. If you want to maybe do some breeding, what are you going to take with you? Oh, that's tough. Um. Definitely like the best OG cut that you got. Uh probably yeah, like Josh D, like one of one of his cuts of OG, whatever the best cush that they have right there. Uh and then I really do like Gelato 41 a lot. Like it's fire. Um that strain is dank. So I I would say the best OG and then Gelato 41 and then I need a I need like a sativa strain too for the desert island. So there's a strain that I haven't been able to get in a long time, uh, called Alaskan Thunderfuck. And that strain is like the craziest sativa that you've ever smoked. And I would love to have that strain. Yeah, those three. That's a that's some good picks there. I like that. And I agree. You can throw all the hate you want at me, but gelato forty one slaps. Oh, yeah. So, next one. This one's a little variant, a second last one. It's a variant from what we normally do. I'm going to give you a time machine. You can go anywhere, you know, in history and around the world. And when you're there, you're going to collect a big bag of humus. Where do you want to get humus from throughout history? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'd have to go like hundreds of years back like maybe like a few thousand years to get some like real nice like untouched like volcanic soil that hasn't been tainted with pesticides and stuff yeah like i like at least you know two thousand years probably yeah man let's get let's get that nazareth jesus og going for real exactly yeah so i mean yeah something like that i don't know so there's still like i don't even know that's a good answer. That's a good answer. Now, I'll give you the, the final question we always ask people. So, same thing. I'm going to give you a time machine. You can go back in time. You can do whatever you want. But this time, you're going to collect some seeds or a cutting. Where are you going to go? What are you going to get? Oh, where would I go? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, uh, I would go back to the 90s and get a cut of OG with, like, the original Kush crew. And because uh, that's, like... That's that's like one of the like Kush at that time was like the top of the market. Um, 
Yeah, so I would get like a real cut of OG Kush. Yeah. So I think that just about brings us to the end of it for today. Were there any general comments or shout outs you wanted to make? Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, you know, shout out to to you guys that, that want to listen to this and, you know, hear us talk about living soil and kind of what we're doing here at No-Till Kings. Um, we're definitely trying to cultivate, you know, the highest quality flower that is available on the rec market um, and be consistent with it as well. And I think that's the toughest thing is just being consistent batch after batch at like a really elite level. Um, it's definitely just tough. So, you know, we're working hard. We're a super small team, uh, and we're working really hard to cultivate the highest quality cannabis that you can. Incredible. I love the message. So again, a huge shout out to both Jake and Marco of the No-Till Kings for joining us today. It's been very enlightening. We're incredibly grateful. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you guys. There you have it, gang. What do you think? Huge shout out to Jake and Marco for stopping by, dropping all the organic fanatic knowledge and a bit of tidbits of information about some of their cultivars. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to support our sponsors or our Patreon. Our Patreon is at www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. We'd love to have you a part of the Patreon gang, getting access to early episodes, unheard content and genetic giveaways. And likewise, a huge shout out to our buddies at Seeds here now for all the best seeds in the industry, your number one seed bank, guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Pulse sensors, the best sensors in the game. I use them. I think your grow will improve if you integrate one into yours. Whether you're a single tent, a single room, or a multi-state operation, Pulse has everything you need to keep your room dialed in. And finally, a huge shout out to our friends at Copet Biological Systems. These guys will help keep your garden pest and pathogen free all while pumping on full cylinders to ensure your next crop is the best to date. Check them out now, guys. Afiparam for aphids, Spidex Vital for spider mites. You know them, you love them. Copet Biological Systems, thank you so much. And that just about does it for this episode, my friends. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. We'll see you for the next one. Happy days signing off. We'll see you.